All right, uh, grab your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 1, or your devices or whatever. We'll be in John chapter 1 today, and we are continuing on through our series that we have called Truth Seekers, and just talking about, man, there's a lot of opinions out there today on what the truth is, whether that's uh, theological truth, or whether that's political truth, or whether that's truth about 2020 and the season that we're in, and just realizing that as Christ followers, we should be deeply grounded in truth, and we should be grounded in truth all the time. The truth should be very important to us. It should be something that we are actively seeking. And so we have spent time this fall talking about, well, how do we do that? Uh, we all know truth is important, but how can we tell? And, and when there's all these voices out there, how can we sort through what is actually right and what is actually of God? Because if we believe that all truth ultimately comes from God, then obviously what he has to say about it is very important. And so we have talked about how the search for truth involves uh, searching for it. It is an actual search that we should never just automatically believe something that we hear, whatever that may be, but truth actually requires some investigation. Truth has to be rooted in some evidence. There has to be something we can point to that says this is why we believe that it's true beyond just, well, somebody said it or I heard somebody say it. And so it requires a search. It requires some evidence. We took a week to talk about as we're searching for truth, we're also recognizing that while God is truth and his word is truth and, and that truth is perfect, we're not. And we bring some sin to our search for truth. We bring some biases. We bring some flesh. And so how do we empty ourselves of that as much as we can? How can we be conscious of it so that it's not interfering in our search for truth? We took a week to talk about the word of truth, scripture, and how our truth is established there. And if we're going to be people of truth, we need to be richly saturated in scripture. And then last week we talked about the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, who also comes to lead us into all truth. We don't want to just be saturated in scripture. We want to be filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit so that he can lead us into truth as well. And as we're seeking about truth, I have said this throughout, it's an easy sort of series to think that the things that I'm saying are for other people and not you, but it's for you, right? It's for you. It's for me. It's for all of us. We cannot be so arrogant to think that, well, we have truth all figured out and we can't possibly be deceived. And the reason I say that is because Adam and Eve were face-to-face -face with God, face-to-face -face with his glory, face-to-face -face with his commandment, and they were still deceived. And so if they can be deceived, we all need to be on guard. We must never think, I've got the Bible figured out. I've got it totally nailed down. I've got truth totally handled. Uh, any one of us can be deceived, and that's just being honest and humble. And that doesn't make us fall into despair, but it should make us say, okay, so how do I make sure that I'm not deceived? How do I make sure I am being fully grounded in truth, in the word of truth, and in the spirit of truth? And so we're going to continue on today. We'll do this for a few more weeks, and this will take us into Christmas um, but I hope you're enjoying it. I'm actually having a lot of fun in this series. It's not, my, it's not the easiest series, but I'm having fun as we navigate it together. So if you know me, you know I'm not an overly handy guy. I don't have a lot of handy skills. My dad was relatively handy. He taught me some things. My father-in-law is very handy. I have learned more there as well. But I'm not super handy. And so uh, in that sense, the internet is the best thing that ever happened to guys like me. Because if there's a repair around the house that I need to do and I feel like I could probably pull this off even though I don't know what I'm doing, it's great because I can Google it and I can go to a website and the website will say, well, here's what you need to do. And because I'm careful, I'll read a second website and it'll say, here's what you need to do. And I'll say, good. Well, that lines up with the first website. I'll even read a third website that says, here's what you need to do. And then if they're all saying the same thing, I feel like, all right, I've got this. I have a handle. I know how to fix this problem. I've landed on the truth for how we're going to fix 
this thing. But then an amazing website showed up for guys like me about 15 years ago, and that website was YouTube. And if I go to YouTube and say, how do I fix this? A guy's going to show me how to do it. There's going to be a guy there who says, oh, you're trying to fix this plumbing problem? Well, here, here's step one, here's step two, and he's actually going to live it out for me so that I can understand what I need to do to fix it. Knowing me, I will still do it wrong multiple times probably before it gets nailed, and I might have to call my father-in-law to come and save the day. But it's, there's something about seeing somebody do it that is so unbelievably helpful, right? And so reading about it is good, and it brings the understanding. It's important. But seeing it lived out is just kind of a whole other level. And, and I, I will take the both together. The reading helps me understand what the truth is, but the video shows me what that looks like when it's actually working from someone who's actually an expert and what they're talking about. And all of that together brings a tremendous amount of understanding to me. And that's really where we're going today. Today. When Jesus came and was walking the earth, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way to heaven. I am the source of eternal life. And in there, I am the truth. And so as our Savior, we honor Jesus as the truth. Everything he says is truth. Everything he does is truth. Everything about who God is is shared in Jesus. It is revealed in Jesus. Jesus is the truth. And so if we're talking about being truth seekers, well, we need to be Jesus' followers, right? If he's the truth and what he says is truth and what he does is truth, then if we're going to be people of truth, then we need to be very, very grounded in Jesus and who Jesus is. And what's beautiful about Jesus is, is that Jesus is the perfect revelation of God, the perfect will of God, the perfect way of God lived out for us as an example. The Bible is the word of God written down. Jesus is the word of God lived out in human form. And so we can look to Jesus and say, well, that's how I'm supposed to live. That's how I live a life that pleases God. And so Jesus shows us God's truth by living it out for us perfectly so we can look to him as our living example that we are seeking to follow. So let's take a look at our text today. We're in John chapter 1, and we're starting right at the beginning. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen, right? That's good stuff. Thanks, John. That's amazing. 
So that is often used as a Christmas verse. It's actually my favorite Christmas verse, this idea, the Word became flesh, that in these few verses, Jesus is given the name the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We could insert Jesus in there. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus is given the name the Word there. And there's many different reasons that theologians talk about why. Why is Jesus given the title the Word? Isn't the Bible the Word? That's what we use call the Word of God, but here Jesus is called the Word of God. And one of the reasons that we're going to unpack today is that Jesus is the revelation of who God is. God reveals himself through his Word, and Jesus is the revelation of who God is. And so the Bible is the Word of God written out, and Jesus is the Word made flesh, the Word put in a human body, the Word in a human life, the revelation of God perfectly lived out. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's just a great Christmas verse. And I love the fall. Like, I, fall's my favorite season. I enjoy September when school's getting back in and the ministry season is starting again and Thanksgiving is really nice, which we've just celebrated, and then the colors are changing and the weather is cooling, and I never want to rush ahead to get to Christmas time. But there's something about 2020 that's like, bring on Christmas, the sooner the better. Let's just get there, right? Come on. I want the treats. I want warm, fuzzy feelings in my tummy. I want all of it as soon as possible. And so there's no judgment if you're getting your Christmas tree up any time from now and between now and Christmas. No judgment at all. So the word becomes flesh. The revelation of God becomes flesh. The revelation of God takes on human form. The revelation of God gets lived out. The Bible is God's truth written down. Jesus is God's truth lived out. And Jesus says, come follow me then. Come live like I am living. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews 1, verse 1 to 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. He's talking about the word, the written word of God. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So God has spoken his word through prophets. That got written down. We call that the Bible. God has spoken his truth through apostles. That got written down. That became the New Testament. God has spoken his truth through his son. Jesus brings the truth to us and lives it out for us. And Jesus says, come and follow me. And Jesus is the exact representation of his being. So Jesus is the only one in the Bible who has actually lived the perfect life. He is the only one who brings that perfection in human form because even the other other anointed apostles and prophets were still sinners, and we see some of their sin in the stories of Scripture. Jesus lives it out perfectly. He's the only perfect example. And, and we are an Anabaptist church, and that doesn't mean we think we're better than other churches or anything, but that's just who we are. We're an Anabaptist church. We have an Anabaptist statement of faith. We have an Anabaptist emphasis. And Anabaptists showed up in the 1500s, and from the beginning, their emphasis has always been very much on Jesus and how Jesus is not just divine and worshipped. Of course, we acknowledge all of that. But that the way Jesus lived his life on earth is crucially important to us as Christ followers. And when it comes to understanding truth and it comes to understanding scripture and we're starting to dig into how should we be living our lives, that the way Jesus lived his life is unbelievably important to us. To throw a fancy theological term at you, Anabaptists have always believed in a Christocentric orthopraxy. 
And so Christocentric means Christ-centered. Ortho means correct, right? So an orthodontist corrects your teeth. Uh, Christians talk about orthodoxy, which means the correct understanding or the correct opinion. We want to have an orthodoxy that's based in Scripture so that we know that our theology is solid. Orthopraxy means correct practices, correct actions, correct living of life. And so Anabaptists have revered all of Scripture, but they've always followed a Christocentric orthopraxy, that when we're looking for how do we live out the truths of Scripture, Jesus is our main example. We honor all of it, but Jesus is central because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the one who has come and and shown us the perfect way to live. And so if we're going to follow somebody, we're going to follow Jesus. And so we'll read all of Scripture, but if there's ever a part where, where it's like, you know, David does this and Jesus does something different, we don't wrestle with which one we're supposed to lean towards, we lean towards Jesus, while in no way dishonoring what God has done through David, but it's always been centered around who Jesus is. And so in the Reformation, which is when the Anabaptists start to rise up in the 1500s, there's this great shift that begins to happen in the church, because there is really, there's one Western church, and it's the Roman Catholic Church, and in many ways they've gotten far from Scripture and far from the way of Christ. And so Names start to rise up like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zwingli, and they begin to go back to the Bible. And they begin to say things that we would take for granted today, but were pretty radical at the time. And they began to say things like, you know what? The Bible should be our main source of of decisions on things. It shouldn't be church tradition. It shouldn't be popes. It should be the Word of God. And everybody should have the Word of God. The Word of God shouldn't just be in Latin for a few priests to understand. Everybody should have a Bible, and everybody should be able to understand it. And they began to look at even the way that the gospel was being presented. And it was very much, hey, if you do enough good things for the church, the Pope or the priest will pray for you and you'll get into heaven. And they said, well, that doesn't sound quite right. That doesn't seem to be what the Bible says. The Bible says that we're saved by faith and by his grace. It's by what he has done for us. We don't earn our way into heaven. We're saved because of what he did at the cross for us. And so there were many ways, again, they sound so normal to us now, but they were really quite earth shattering at the time. And they began to teach, hey, let's get back to the Bible And let's get the gospel back to where the gospel is supposed to be. And let's get it away from this man-centered thing that it has become. And so this movement begins to happen, and people begin to say, yes, that is a better way, and that does seem more biblical, and that does sound more solid. And they begin to follow what becomes the Protestant movement. It started as a protest uh, against some of these excesses that they saw in the Roman Catholic Church. And then amongst the Protestants, there was a little group in Switzerland who said, we love everything that's happening. Like, we love back to Scripture. We love, let's get to the real gospel. We love, let's get back to Jesus. We love, let's get the Bible into everybody's hands. They, They were fully on board. But they said, we actually don't think this is going far enough. Because when they looked around at things that were happening in the Reformation, they said, you know, a lot of the ways that some of these leaders are acting and some of these nations are acting doesn't look a lot like the life of Jesus. Like, they don't look like Jesus looked when Jesus walked the earth. And so Martin Luther, who we're all indebted to, who God used to recapture the idea that we're saved by grace through faith, that we are not earning it, that we are are right with God because of what Jesus has done, not because of anything that we do. He wrote some of the most brilliant things of the age, and, and we've all been influenced by him, even if you've never heard his name before. At the end of his life, he had been spending his life trying to convert the Jewish people to Christianity, and a lot of them just weren't doing it. And so one of the things that he wrote towards the end of his life was a book a booklet called on the jews and their lies and honestly it would make hitler look polite 
Just the Jews are worthy of judgment, so we should all be part of that. So we need to burn down their synagogues, Christians. We need to get together. We need to take their wealth away. They can have their wealth back if they convert to Jesus, but if they don't, we'll just hold on to that at the church. If any of us were to kill them along the way, no one could fault us. And just said some of the most vicious stuff that you can imagine. And Anabaptists went, like, that's not really how Jesus lived his life. Like, that doesn't sound like Christ. Christ doesn't uh, act out judgment against those who disagree with him. We don't see those examples in Scripture. John Calvin, likewise, brilliant theologian, has brought some of the most beautiful Bible commentaries that you can imagine and, again, has influenced us all, even if we've never heard of him. And one of the things that he did in the midst of all this was there was another teacher who arose who said, I'm not sure the Trinity is biblical. And so Calvin led the charge to have him burned at the stake for heresy. Just like Jesus, right, guys? Zwingli was another famous reformer, and he was one. He persecuted the Anabaptists incredibly in Switzerland. But he, you know, taking a stand on communion and taking a stand on, on different things and uh, eventually just got mixed up with the politics of his day. And so when his city was believing this about Scripture and that city was believing something else about Scripture, Zwingli says, well, we have no choice but to pick up our swords and go wipe them off the face of the earth because they're in such blasphemy. So they went and had a huge battle. Zwingli gets chopped down and dies on the battlefield trying to kill other brothers and sisters in Christ because they disagree about a passage of Scripture together. And so like, these were brilliant men who loved the Word and did so much good, and yet the Anabaptists looked at some of this stuff and said, that just doesn't look a lot like Jesus, some of these actions. Some of these actions actually look the exact opposite of how Jesus lived his life. And so the Anabaptists said, it's not just about getting back to Scripture. It's not just about getting back to the Gospel. It is those things. But it's also about to be a Christian, we should actually look like Jesus. We should actually be living our lives in such a way that look like Jesus. And so a very important Anabaptist verse is 1 John 2.6. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did or must live as Jesus did. And so if we're going to call ourselves Christians, I mean, it actually doesn't say whoever claims to live in him must affirm these theological statements. Although, of course, to live after Jesus would be to affirm such things. But whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And so the way Jesus lives his life, the things he taught, and the way he treated people, and the way he lives it out becomes hugely important. Because if we remove the life of Jesus from our search for truth, and if we remove the way he lives his life, then it's very easy for us just to grab scriptures that suit our purposes and say, you know what? In the Old Testament, they executed a blasphemer, so I'm allowed to kill this guy who doesn't agree with the Trinity. And you go, well, in a million years, can you imagine Jesus of Nazareth doing that? Do we see anything close to that in the Gospels? The one who said, love your enemy, and the one who treated people with compassion who were from different places, and the one who was just patient and, and certainly strong in his convictions, but not to the point of, like, killing somebody who was on a different page. And so the Anabaptists said, we have to get back to living like Jesus did. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, then our lives have to look the way Jesus' life looked. And so there's a term that's come up in more recent years called red-letter Christians. And I don't like the term, and I, I wouldn't consider myself a red-letter Christian. But it was a derogatory term that came up with some, towards some guys like Tony Campolo and others. And the, the sort of derogatory side of it was these people think that the red letters, like the, the words of Christ, 
are, are more important than other parts of Scripture. Like they, they, It was sort of like they don't think it's all inspired. They think this is especially inspired. And it's become a full movement. And some of those guys grabbed that and said, yes, we are. And I, I wouldn't want to go that far. And there's things in that movement that I don't agree with. But Anabaptists have always said, it's not that the words of Christ are, are more important than other parts of scripture. Uh, it's not that, you know, it's not that Jesus is more important than Paul because the same spirit that filled Jesus also filled Paul and inspired Paul. So it's not that, but it's just that when it comes to how are we living out our lives, if in order to call myself a Christian, my life needs to look like Jesus, then I should be well steeped in the life of Jesus. Right? And, and if I'm going to be formed into the image of this Jesus, and if this Jesus has called me to follow him, and if he is the perfect example that I've given to follow, and that if I'm going to claim to live in him, I have to live like him, then yeah, the teachings and life of Christ should be a priority. Not at the expense of the rest of Scripture, but with the rest of Scripture, we should be well-grounded in the life of Christ. If that's the life we're supposed to be following, we better know what he had to say. We better know how he treated people. We better know all of those things. And then the rest of Scripture becomes a part of that journey. But, you know, we want to be centered in on who he is and how he lived his life when we are trying to think, how do we live our lives? And Anabaptists have always done that. The question for Anabaptists from the beginning has always been, what would Jesus do? do? That's still the right question. And all the commercialism of that aside and the stupid bracelets, that's actually a pretty nice bracelet. Remember the super cheap ones that just look like your kid made them? What would Jesus do? It's still the right question if we're going to be followers of Jesus. And if we find ourselves struggling in different parts of, well, Scripture says this here, but Jesus lives this out here, you know, we have to wrestle through that for sure. But as I said, if it's Moses did this and Jesus did this different, we're going to go with Jesus. Jesus breaks the tie because we're called to live our lives after him. And when we look at some of those, especially Old Testament stuff, and how that sometimes doesn't fully line up maybe with how Jesus lives his life, or at least it doesn't seem to, or parts of the New Testament that are different, one of the things that a Christ-centered orthopraxy does for us as well is it rightly places us solidly in the New Covenant. And a lot of these things start to happen when we just get picky and choosy. Well, I like this part of the law, and I like that part of the Old Covenant, and I like this part of what happens to Israel. But that's not really what we're supposed to be doing, because the Bible says the Old Covenant is obsolete to us. The Bible says we're dead to the law. When Jesus shows up, he says, I'm starting something new. The kingdom of heaven has now arrived, and my people are going to live differently than the rest of the world. And so there is a, a shift that has happened, and we revere the Old Testament as inspired by God. We still need it. We're not cutting ourselves off from it or dismissing it in any way, but we also need to rightly understand where we fit in to this great God story, that we are not Israel. We are the church, and, and we have a different call than Israel had, and, and we're all part of the same family, but we're not the same. And so we are following after the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is made most clear in the cross. That Jesus comes and lives this life that says, I am all about, number one, obeying my Father perfectly. I am about obeying him and glorifying him. And then I am all about other people and laying my life down for them. 
And so broadly, that is the life of Jesus in a nutshell. And we can dig into the specifics of that for sure, and we should. But broadly, Jesus lives a life that says, I'm here to obey and glorify the Father, and I'm here to lay down my life for you, to serve you, to teach you, to minister to you, to do whatever I need to do for you, ultimately culminating in the cross. And so when Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God and love others, he models that perfectly for us. He couldn't do it any better. He lives this life of perfect holiness before the Father, obeying the Father and glorifying the Father, this perfect life of how can I serve you? How can I wash your feet? There's nothing Jesus does for his own benefit or for his own glory or for his own wealth or anything like that. Jesus lives this life entirely centered on God and on others. It culminates in the ultimate sacrifice at the cross. And Jesus says to each of us, now you deny yourself, you pick up your own cross and you do what I do it. Come follow me. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow me as well. So to live our life like Jesus did is to say, how do I live a life that perfectly obeys the Father, that glorifies him, and that is given in service of others, even to the point of laying down my life if I have to? A friend of mine was preaching last week, and he was talking about the challenges of 2020 and restrictions and things that we've all wrestled with. And he said, you know, we should be the best self-deniers on earth. We should, like, we're supposed to be doing that every single day. And so when it comes to, I don't really like this, that really shouldn't matter because Christ followers should be the best self-deniers on earth for the glory of God and in service of others. Like that, the, the attitude of it should be easy for us. When I was struggling with masks a little bit at the beginning, where I finally find myself, found myself was in a place of going, this is just a great opportunity for me to deny my flesh. It's not my favorite thing. But what a great opportunity for me to put others first. What a great opportunity to show the Lord. And even if it turns out Mass didn't do a lot, I'll stand before the Lord with my head up and say, Lord, you know I did this for the right reason. You know I did it out of love and devotion to others. And so this life that we're called to to follow after Jesus isn't an easy one. And even though salvation is free, following after Jesus costs us a lot because we have to lay ourselves down and live a life that says it's actually not about me. And, and in my own life, my natural tendency is that what I want and what I think and what I believe are the most important things, right? The universe revolves around me because in my brain, that literally is the way it is, right? I go about and then the world is there. But to follow after Jesus is to say, no, we're going to be very different than that, actually. We're going to lay our life down for the sake of him and his glory. We're going to live our life down for the sake of others. And Jesus lives out God's truth perfectly for us and then says, come follow me. So in our search for truth, the life of Jesus has to be crucially important as we're trying to figure that out. And if we're not doing that, we can see, as the reformers did, as some of the mistakes that the church has made in its history often happen when they are even digging into the word but ignoring Jesus and the life of Jesus. And the Anabaptists just said we shouldn't be doing that. We should be digging into the word, we should be filled with the spirit, and we should be following after the example of Christ because Christ is truth lived out for us perfectly. And so we've talked in this series already about slavery and how Christians, including in Canada, for many, many years, uh, use scripture to justify slavery and, and to justify kidnapping people and splitting up families and, and beating and abusing people and doing it all like... The heartbeat of slavery is you're going to be less than a human so that I can make more money, 
right? Like that was the heartbeat of, of Western slavery. Uh, I don't think that's the heartbeat of biblical slavery. But that'll be a conversation for another day. But Colossians 3, 22-24, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And so people for hundreds of years went, see, the Bible's fine with slavery. The Bible says, hey, you know what, slaves? God's going to make it right in eternity, even if it's not the best thing for you right now. So, you know, go at it with all of your heart. And, and if God wanted to change the view on slavery, he could. And so they found scripture along the way that said, hey, we are justified in the kidnapping, the abuse, and doing it all for our own greed and our own wealth. Because it's in the Bible. The Bible says so. So we can do it. We're not missing God. That's God's truth. It's there in the word. And so we see the danger then when we remove the life of Jesus from our view of Scripture and how we are reading the Word. Because we talked about the, the struggle of that passage a couple weeks ago. I won't do it again. But I heard an atheist once who was debating a Christian about the Bible and the atheist, of course, doesn't understand the Bible and can't understand the Bible, so we don't put a lot of stock in their view of the Bible. But this atheist said, you know, depending on what scriptures you choose to pick, you can make the Bible say pro-slavery things, you can make it say anti-slavery things, you can make it say pro-women things, anti-women things, liberal things, conservative things, like however you want to massage it, you can actually just find the scripture that fits the point you're trying to make, and then that can be the thing that you're presenting as the truth. And even though this is an atheist who doesn't really understand scripture, I actually agree with what he's saying if we're not careful. And that's why we took a week in this series just to talk about how can I empty myself, my sin, my biases out of this search so that it's not just me picking what I want to pick. I do think that that's really important. But the church has done this. And so where the church has said slavery is good based on this verse that we found, another great example is the Crusades. In the Middle Ages, uh, the Muslim nations and the Christian nations are constantly constantly at war with each other, and in the, around 1000 AD, uh, they start to talk about, hey, uh, you know, it's not really great that the Muslims got the Holy Land, because the Muslims have the Holy Land, and how's Jesus going to come back if the Muslims are in control of the Holy Land? And so the Pope says, I've heard from God, in the name of Jesus, we need to go take back the Holy Land. We need to kick the pagans out, and that way the Lord will be able to come back. And so they went and started a campaign that we now call the Crusades, where Christian soldiers, in the name of Jesus, went, and they started attacking Muslim cities and towns on their way to Jerusalem. And the way they justified that was from Scripture. They read Deuteronomy 20, 16 and 17. God says to Israel, However, the nation, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. And so they went, well, God obviously is okay with slaughter because Israel got to do it, and that's in the word. And so when they got to Jerusalem, they laid siege to Jerusalem, and then eventually they breached the walls and they entered the town, and they slaughtered every man, woman, and child that was in there, tens of thousands of innocent civilians, and they killed all of them. And the way that they went through it was, are you a Muslim? If you're a Muslim, cut their throat. Are you a Jew? You're Jewish? Cut your throat. Are you a different kind of Christian than us? We're Western Christians. Are you an Eastern Christian? Cut your throat. 
And tens of thousands of people die. And the contemporary accounts of the time say that in one of the temples where they killed a bunch of Muslims, that the blood actually like rose to the level of their ankles as it rolled down the aisle. And once they were done all of the killing, they went and had a church service. And they wept that Jesus had delivered such a slaughter into their hands. So in a million years, can you imagine Jesus of Nazareth acting in this way? And so just because we find a passage in the Old Testament where, well, Israel got to do it. And you go, well, Israel was a nation and not a church. And Israel was given specific commands. And we know from Scripture that God will sometimes use the nations to to discipline one another. But for the Christ follower, Jesus says, love your enemy and put away the sword. And so the question isn't actually, when we talk about Anabaptists and pacifism, isn't whether countries should fight. Because Romans 14 says God has given the sword to the nations. The the nations who are in charge, the people who have the power, have been given the sword to administer justice, to protect their citizens. So should Canada have gone to fight Hitler in World War II? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. To resist evil? Sure. Should a police officer use force at times to stop someone? Yeah, of course. God has given the state the sword to protect the citizens and to administer justice. The question is, should the Christ follower, who's been given the commandment to love your enemy, put yourself in a place where you might have to kill your enemy or harm your enemy? And so Anabaptist theologians have always said, listen, evil sometimes needs to be restrained by force. That is a biblical idea, but God hasn't given that job to the church. To the church, he has given the gospel. To the state, he has given the sword. And it's really hard, as this proves, for Christians to go and have the sword in one hand and the gospel in the other and say, hey, God loves you, and so do we, but I'm going to kill you, your wife, and your children, but then I want to tell you about this gospel that God has sent to save the world. How receptive is that crowd going to be in that moment? And so Anabaptists have always said, let the state have the sword and do that. Let the church have the gospel and do that. And and just keep that separate. They shouldn't be all mixed together. And in the Crusades, we saw a lot of that happening. Here's another maybe more recent example in the 50s and 60s. In Canada, uh, we know it more famously in the States, uh, interracial marriage is illegal in a lot of places in the southern states for a long time. John Piper talks about this brilliant reform teacher of our time, and he grew up in the southern states, and he says, I believed that God was against interracial marriage. I believed that. I was taught that my whole life. And it was scriptures like this, Deuteronomy 7.3, the commandments given to Israel, do not intermarry with the nations around you. Do not give them your daughters, do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. And so they, they had this view that, well, God wanted Israel pure and therefore he wanted every nation to be pure. And so there should not be a mixing and a mingling of the different ethnic groups in the world. And so, you know, John Piper talks about it now as a great regret and, and yet also as an example of, you know, we have to be careful even in the word of God. And as much as we revere the word of God as truth, we also need to understand that there was stuff that was Old Covenant and there was stuff that was for Israel as a nation and not everything automatically gets applied to the Christ follower. And so when we talk about our search for truth, here's the last two sermons plus this sermon. This is what we're talking about. That when we want to figure out whether something's true or not, we first go to the word of truth, we check it against the spirit of truth, and we also check it against the life of Christ who lived out the truth perfectly for us. And these things are not separate. These are not three distinct things, right? The same spirit of truth that breathed the word filled Christ, and Christ is the author of the word by the spirit. So if something is true, it should be true across the board. 
And so if we believe something is true from Scripture, like we said last week, we check that against the Holy Spirit. Is the, how is the witness of that happening? Do other Spirit-filled believers come to the same conclusion? Is this taking me deeper in the fruit of the Spirit, or is it taking me in the opposite direction? And we also want to be checking out, is this the way that Jesus Christ lived out his life, who I am commanded to follow? And if it's not on any of those things, we should at least slow down and reinvestigate and take a look again. Like, I think for something to be true, it needs to be true in all three areas. And if it's not, I mean, if I feel like the Spirit is saying something to me that's not right by the Word of God, then I know that's not the truth that I've landed on. If my biblical conviction is leading me in a direction that is the opposite of the way Jesus lived his life, then I need to doubt that that's the truth, probably, because Jesus is the truth of God lived out perfectly. And if we believe that the Word of God comes from the Spirit of God and that Christ is the author of both, then we should believe it shouldn't be a problem to say well it should all be the same then it should all line up as we're searching for truth we don't separate these things how do we learn about the life and teachings of christ from the word right and so they all tie together these are not separate things but they're different avenues by which we can take a look at things they should all be the same so back to the slavery question just to give some practical examples There was a scripture there that suggested, in their view, that God was okay with slavery because Paul talks about how to be a Christ-like slave, and he doesn't say, let's correct this practice. And so based on that, some believed that slavery was okay, that God was in favor of it. So we want to go to the word of truth with that. We did this a few weeks ago and say, you know, there's other passages in the Bible that make pretty clear that kidnapping is a bad thing, that selling someone into slavery is a bad thing, that slave trading and trafficking is a bad thing. So it's really hard to justify Western slavery by the word of God. You can't just grab that Colossians verse and ignore the rest. So we want to say, what does the word of God say as a whole? Is God okay with kidnapping Africans and selling them into slavery? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think there's any way you can justify that. We check it against the spirit of truth. We talked about the fruit of the spirit as being one of those checks. Galatians 5, and 23. Whatever we're believing, is it taking us deeper into love and joy and peace and forbearance, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do these qualities come out when you're kidnapping someone away from their home and splitting a family and selling someone into a place where they might get abused in the name of the wealth of the person who owns them? Does that sound like the Holy Spirit as demonstrated by this fruit? No, of course it doesn't. And so we should question whether that is true or not. And then check it against the life of Jesus. Jesus, who lived his life to the glory of God, obedience to the Father. Jesus, who gave his life in service of others and out of love for others. Can we imagine in a million years that Jesus of Nazareth would ever do any of those things? Would ever kidnap someone and subjugate someone for his own benefit and for his own wealth? It's the exact opposite of what he teaches, and it's the opposite of what he models. And so we, you know, you sort of wish more people had thought that way and not just, hey, I found a verse that's going to let me get wealthy, but is this really the way Jesus lives his life? Jesus who has said, now come and follow me and follow my example. Onto the Crusades. Uh, so they found a verse where Israel went and fought, and yet there's other verses as well. That's not all the Bible has to say. And Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, 44 and 45, love your enemies. 
And pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That one of the things that's going to mark us as belonging to God is that we love our enemies as Christ followers. Let everyone else in the world hate their enemies. We're going to love our enemies. And so Christian violence gets really hard to justify in the face of a commandment like that. When the Savior comes and says, love your enemies. Well, how then can I justify harming my enemy? How can I justify killing my enemy? How can I justify killing my enemy's family? How can I justify taking from them their home? Like, how is that possible in lieu of the command to love your enemy? And that even though Israel as a nation is given the sword in order to go and at times be an element of God's justice on the earth, the church isn't given the sword. And Jesus teaches us the opposite of that. And so how in the name of Jesus can we justify slaughtering Muslim children in the street by the life and the teaching of Jesus? We can't. 1 Peter 3.9 says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And so where it became, hey, they took Jerusalem from us and killed a bunch of us, so we're going to go kill them and take it back. Well, that's repaying evil for evil. That's repaying insult for insult. So we're wanting to look at the whole of God's word and especially what we're called to as followers of Jesus in the new covenant and not just cherry-picking parts of the old covenant that we want to apply to our current situation. Does slaughtering civilians in the street sound like the fruit of the Spirit? Or is it making us more loving? Is there peace and joy in that? Are we showing kindness to the people that we're killing? Is it a gentle thing to do when we're killing them in the streets? Of course it's not. And again, in the life of Jesus who lived a life of God-centeredness and other-centeredness and personal sacrifice, do we see Jesus ever in the Gospels say or teach or model anything that would suggest that that's a good thing to do as a Christ follower? Or is that the opposite of what he's called us to do? I would argue that that is the opposite, and therefore we shouldn't be doing that. Back to the interracial marriage thing. We're just about done here. There are some verses where God told Israel, don't uh, intermarry with the nations around you. He was concerned about their spiritual purity more than their ethnic purity. He didn't want them to get caught up in idol worship and other things. But again, when you look at the word as a whole, there are examples of interracial marriages, even amongst Israel. Moses marries a Cushite woman. When people start to grumble about that, judgment falls on those people, which suggests that God was okay with it. Salmon and Rahab, uh, the Canaanite woman, Boaz and Ruth more famously. Rahab and Ruth are both a part of Jesus' genealogical line, uh, which is interesting that Jesus in his lineage actually is not 100% pure Jew. He's got a little Moabite in there. There's a little Canaanite in there in the ancient history. Uh, Galatians 3.28 talks about how Jesus actually comes to tear down uh, some of these man-made barriers, right, where we, we honor that God has created the nations and the different peoples of the world. Uh, we are really good at putting walls up in between there. But Galatians 3.28 says, no, in Christ, that wall between Jew and Gentile comes down. And it's not that they're not still distinct and important and special, but in Christ, it doesn't matter. And so there are scriptures there then that say, you know, obviously God uh, isn't that upset about it. Like he even allowed people to do it, uh, Salmon and Rahab, right? Even though it was not what the law actually said they should be doing, uh, there is a, a blessing there for them, and they're part of Jesus' line. Again, does the, the attitudes, when you see uh, in the 50s and 60s, there's a great movie called Loving uh, in, in the States. Uh, it's a new movie, but it takes place in the 50s and 60s where uh, an interracial couple is trying to get married in a state where it's illegal. And so there's a white man and a black woman and just about their story and their fight and people you know burning crosses on their lawn and and trying to tear them apart and trying to ruin their marriage and and we said last week like sometimes the truth of the spirit hurts 
So that's not to say that, you know, everything should always be like these lovely things going on inside of us all the time. Like sometimes this, the truth is hard. But, you know, when you can look in general and look at the big picture and say, hey, in general, does this conviction take me deeper in these godly qualities? Does this take me deeper in the fruit of the Spirit? Or is it bringing me the opposite? Is it bringing me in the other direction? Is there a different spirit potentially at work in what I'm doing? It's not the only way to check. Uh, and the spirit one is maybe the hardest one, but it needs to be part of that conversation. And again, when we see the life of Jesus who laid his life down for others, Jesus was, was undeniably coming to minister to Israel and made that very clear. He was the shepherd of Israel and he came to save Israel and yet shows great compassion to the Samaritan woman at the well and the Syrio-Phoenician woman and the Roman centurion like he wasn't just sticking entirely to the Jewish people. And he tells them that, you know, disciples, a time's coming when others outside the flock are going to come in. Like there's going to be a mixing of the flock in the name of Jesus. And so it's hard to imagine Jesus uh, being one of those ones screaming about everybody staying apart when he lives a life that is actually engaging with the other races and welcoming them in, in his name. Colossians 1.5, or sorry, 1.15 and 16 says, the Son is the image of, of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven or on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And those first few words there, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The God that we haven't seen yet, Jesus takes that God and puts flesh on him puts a face on him, puts a name on him, puts a human being who walked in real time on this earth and shows us this is what the perfect life lives like. And so I am not in any way saying we neglect the word of God at all in the name of Jesus. It's no, with that, right? If we're going to be people of truth, we need to be deeply rooted and saturated in the scriptures, but we also need to be deeply filled with the Holy Spirit of truth, and we need to be deeply committed to living out a Christ-like life, because the Word of God says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And in our search for truth, whether it's biblical truth that we're wrestling through, or whether it's the truth of the times that we're living in, or whether we're trying to discern something in our lives, the Scripture and the Spirit and the Son of God should all be saying the same thing, right? They should all be saying the same thing. And if they're not, again, it can be, it takes a wrestling match sometimes to, to work it all out. But if the scripture and the spirit and the son are not all saying the same thing, at the very least, we need to pause and do the wrestling. We need to figure it out, preferably not on our own, but with other believers that we trust. Because scripture and spirit and son should all be united when it comes to truth. Worship team, come on up. So I throw that out there just as a proposal, as a bit of a tool for us when we're trying to process what truth is. We check it against the scriptures, we check it against the spirit of truth, and we check it against the Son of God and how he lived his life. And that's just something that can help us. I don't think everything we wrestle through is probably going to be easy, and it might not always be super black and white, and I'm not giving it to you as a formula necessarily, but just as a, a bit of a tool that's going to help us as we navigate truth. Are we lining up with the Word of God? Are we lining up and in step with the Holy Spirit of God? Are we living that out in a way that lines up with the Son of God and how he lived out? his life. So here's a few questions for you to mull over this week. Am I truly living as Jesus did? Uh, spoiler alert, no, you're not, <laughs> because you're a sinner, and so am I. None of us are doing this perfectly, but that is the question that we want to measure how we're living our life out. Are we living the way Jesus did? 
Uh, are we actually talking the way he talked? Are we loving the way he loved? Are we sacrificing the way he sacrificed? Are we as committed to obedience and holiness as he is? Uh, and we only understand that from the word of God and even the bigger picture of the word of God. One of the popular things that people like to say these days is, uh, you know, Jesus just, he just loved people. He never called things sin. Like he just loved people and loved them where they were. And uh, it was just all about the love. And so we shouldn't be talking about sin or, or anything. Uh, and I hear stuff like that and I go, are you nuts? Like, are you nuts? Like, Jesus talks about sin all the time. If anything, Jesus raises the bar on our holiness to a whole other level. And, and then says, and the Holy Spirit's going to come and help you to do that. Like, it's not going to be on you to do that on your own. But Jesus does that while also loving people ridiculously well. And, and also uh, loving people in a way that was shocking. And also meeting people where they were at. And we're, there's just this tendency, it drives me nuts in Christianity, of just like, well, I think this about Jesus, and I think this about Jesus. Well, let's fight about it. Because I often look at it and say, you're both right. It's not one or the other. It's all of it together. That Jesus was deeply committed to radical obedience and holiness to God while also loving people in such a way that it made the church crowd uncomfortable. And it's both together. It's not one or the other. So to live as Jesus did, it's not easy. It's, it's hard, and it requires us to lay ourselves down. Am I checking my words, my actions, my convictions against Christ's words and actions and convictions? And, and if anything is out of sorts, then I need to stop and take a really good look at that. Because if I'm truly walking in truth and I'm truly walking in what God wants, then I should be walking the way Jesus is walking. Are there any areas of my life, my thoughts, my convictions that need to realign to Christ? Spoiler alert. Yes, there are. There are. I heard a, a well-known preacher who's in his 80s. He's been in the ministry a long time. One of his staff members was bragging about him and said, you know, I've known that man for a long time, and he's not changed a single biblical conviction in 50 years. And I went, oh, that doesn't sound right to me. <laughs> like, that just, it was meant as just he's solid. And I go like, well, I, I have changed in my thoughts over the years. And mostly it's because my thoughts were wrong and needed to get right. And I just can't imagine being in a place to be like, I mastered this book at 25, and I never needed to, to do any more than that. It's like, no, we are all sinners. We all need to change. And, and we all have areas that need to realign to Jesus. So what will I do to get to know Jesus better? And, and the main way is obviously going to be we'll get into him, get into his word, get into his teaching, get into the way he lives his life. If that's the life that decides to the world whether I'm a Christian or not, whoever claims to be a Christian has to live as Jesus did, then I better be well saturated in that life. I better know what he taught. I better see how he treated people. I better look at what his radical obedience and holiness look like. If that's the life that I am pointed to as the way to show the world that I'm a Christ follower, uh, it sounds really obvious, but to be a Christ follower, we actually need to follow Christ. How about that? Someone posted recently, an American minister, and they said, we're talking so much these days about how to get the nation back to being Christian. How do we get this nation to be more Christian? And she said, I think we should work first on how to get Christians to be more Christian. Then we can worry about the nation after that. We are followers of Christ. And as followers of Christ, we actually need to follow Christ. Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So if you want to get to know God better, you look to Jesus. If you want to know what God sounds like, you, you look at Jesus. If you want to know how God wants you to act, you look at Jesus. In 
concert with all of Scripture, of course. But if you are here or if you're watching online and you don't know the Lord, if you're just here checking this out and you're not sure about any of it, then my encouragement is just get to know Jesus. Start there. Just get to know Jesus. Gospel of John is a great place to start. Open up there. Get to know him. Because as you get to know him, you are getting to know the Father. You will get to know who God is and what he wants of you. Would you stand with me, please, as we get ready to close in worship? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the one we serve. He is the one we worship. He is the one who has saved us. He is the one who is worthy of all of our worship. And so we will close with worshiping him today, and then we'll pray and dismiss after that.